This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was the year 1934, and the headmaster of a boys' high school was shot and killed in his study. He had been much loved and respected by students and staff, so everyone was at a loss as to who would want to kill him. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Spear Gun. Elliot Spear was shot dead at his school. Did they find the murderer? It's often said that our school days are the best days of our lives. Many of us can reflect back on those days fondly, and some of us are also fortunate enough to have returned many years later to attend our school reunions. This story today takes a look at a man named Craig Whaley, who attended his school reunion, and one can only imagine the conversations and reminiscing that had taken place between old school friends. But for Craig, he had a conversation that he hadn't expected. There was a discussion about something that had happened at their school some 50 years earlier. He vaguely recalled hearing about the story when he had attended the school, but it had long faded from his memory. Then, as an adult, he became so intrigued when reminded of the story again at the reunion that he became determined to find out all he could. This episode will recount what he was able to uncover. It was the year 1932 at the Mount Hermon School for Boys in Massachusetts in the US. The school had been founded 50 years earlier in 1881 by an evangelist named Dwight L. Moody. He set up two schools for poor children with the focus on Christian education. There were two separate schools for the girls and for the boys. By 1932, the school's headmaster, Dr. Henry Cutler, was due to retire after leading the school for 40 years. Cutler chose a man named Elliot Spear to succeed him. He had been the president of the board of trustees at the school. Over the 40 years that had passed before Elliot took over the school, the world had changed and traditional religious beliefs were being challenged by modernism. Darwin's theory of evolution was becoming more accepted, but it was also other world events which changed the thinking of the time, such as World War I, and scholars such as Marx, Freud and Einstein also provided new thinking. At the school, the faculty consisted of a mix of traditionalists and modernists, but the appointment of Eliot was an attempt to satisfy both camps. He had been an ordained minister and was also known to desire that the religious traditions of the school continue, although he also had some progressive beliefs. Under the previous conservative regime, staff were forbidden to smoke. The only reading material allowed on Sundays for the students was the Bible, and having a deck of cards could result in expulsion. There was also almost no contact between the boys and the girls at the two campuses. However, Elliot introduced dances between the two schools. Previously, dancing had not been allowed. He even hired teachers to teach the students dancing. He also allowed card playing. While many applauded the changes, 
The traditionalists, of course, did not. Here is one quote showing the opposition to dancing. Our young people do not know the evil nor damning consequences of the modern dance. Many an innocent, pure, fine, noble girl has gone to the dance floor not knowing the peril of it and has come out a physical and moral wreck with hopes blighted, virtue stolen, prospects clouded and womanhood gone. But despite the changes occurring at the school, Elliot was much respected. He showed a clear and genuine interest in the students, not coming across as a strict authoritarian, but he had a warmth and caring about him that students responded to. But those opposed to his principles believed he was listening too much to the students and making changes at the school on their behalf. Some also thought the school was veering further and further away from the principles of the school's founder, Dwight L. Moody. And then there were those who had a more middle-of-the-road view, as can be seen in this quote. There are a good many things Elliot Spear is doing that I am not in sympathy with and don't believe in. But my knowledge of the man is such that I know he is just as thoroughly interested in the character and Christian education of the boys as ever was D.L. Moody. So it was this kind of view of Eliot which showed that he had a charm about him which could still demand respect despite the differences in ideology. Now let's fast forward two years to September 1934. Eliot had been principal for two years and then the start of his third year at the school approached and the new school year was about to commence. School staff had returned from their holidays, as did Elliot and his family, which consisted of his wife Charlotte and their three daughters, aged 12, 10 and 4. They had their own cottage on the school grounds, called Ford Cottage. It was a Friday night, and school would be starting on the following Monday. Elliot and his family had had dinner together, and he then made his way to his study to make preparations for the coming term. A window in his study provided a view out into the school grounds. He could see the school chapel, dormitories, gymnasium, and further into the distance, he could see the Connecticut River and a valley of green fields and pastures. But as Elliot sat at his desk, he had no way of knowing that it would be the last time he would enjoy this view from his study. His study window was suddenly shattered by gunshots, with the bullets entering from outside the building, which struck Elliot. A total of nine bullets had hit him. His wife Charlotte heard the shots and went down the stairs to see what had happened. It was then that she saw Elliot, who had staggered out of his study, and he was clearly bleeding. It wasn't long until house servants, who had heard the shots, rushed to his aid. A doctor was called, but it was too late, and Elliot was pronounced dead. Early speculation led to three possible motives for the murder. The first was that a religious fanatic may have felt Elliot wasn't adhering to the school founder's principles. The second theory was that another staff member may have had ambitions to be the headmaster and was jealous of Elliot's appointment over them. And finally, was his murder revenge by a former student expelled from the school 
or a staff member who had been dismissed. But for the time being, possible motives or theories were put aside as the police had the first task of thoroughly searching Elliot's study, his cottage and the school grounds. So while the police went about their search, the school administration and his family had the task of trying to come to terms with what had happened. They could just not fathom that someone would want to do this to their beloved headmaster. The staff held an emergency meeting to decide what to do. They had to put all of their speculation aside regarding why and how this had happened to focus on the question of what to do about the imminent start of the new school year in a few days. After much deliberation, it was decided that the new school year would still go ahead. In the school's newspaper, before his death, Elliot had written a greeting to the new students, which read, quote, Greetings and welcome. From 500 homes and for 5,000 reasons, Herman men will be arriving on the hill to start the new year. During your days here, we hope Mount Herman will be a home to you. But above all, we hope that during the work and the play that you will, in the words of Theodore Roosevelt, in his advice to American boys, constantly hit the line hard. During that weekend, the police began searching the school grounds, but there had been limited manpower to do a thorough search. So it was decided that they would use some of the students to help with the search. Some of the students who boarded at the school had returned from their holidays, and the senior boys helped police search the grounds and the surrounding woods. A nearby lake was also drained in the hope of finding the murder weapon, as was the Connecticut River. It was thought the killer may have thrown the weapon from the bridge into the river, and this is where they focused the search. But despite many weeks of searching, a weapon was never found. While searches were being done in the grounds and the surrounds of the school, a search of Elliot's study produced two interesting finds. First was a gun that was found in Elliot's desk drawer. This led to the theory that perhaps Elliot had received threats and therefore the gun was for his protection. However, many people refuted this theory, saying that Elliot had no enemies as far as anyone knew. After further investigating the gun, they found out that he had a friend who had worked at a bank where Elliot was once a director, and the man had bought guns for the security guards. Elliot had asked him to buy him a gun as well. While searching, they also found something else quite interesting. It was a book on his bookshelf titled The Public School Murder. Here is one excerpt from that book. There, at that window, the headmaster sat writing. The light shone upon him. He was a conspicuous target. The murderer crept stealthily along the edge of the grass until he was within a yard or two. He went very calmly to carry out his purpose. His step was firm. His hand was perfectly steady. Under cover of the night, he slipped into the quadrangle. He walked on the grass. He came within two or three yards of the headmaster's window. The headmaster was writing. He was quite unconscious of the man who stood so close. He did not look up. This man had already loaded the rifle 
with one of his two cartridges. At point-blank range, raised the rifle to his shoulder. He took deliberate aim. He fired. In the book, the rifle was eventually found in a nearby lake. And as already seen, there was a lake near the school, which had been searched. Police discovered that Elliot had often lent his books to the school staff. So a theory was raised that it was a staff member who had read the book and then emulated the crime. After a thorough search of the school grounds, police were eventually able to find bits of shotgun wadding and cardboard from a shotgun shell. It was determined that the weapon had been a 12-gauge shotgun. And when looking at where Elliot's residence was located, the investigators surmised that as it had been night when the murder occurred, the killer must have had a good knowledge of the school grounds. Some of the theories the police pursued included looking at students Elliot had expelled, of which there had been six. However, teachers at the school discounted this theory, saying, I have heard boys say, after they have been expelled, that they would rather be disciplined by Dr. Spear than by any man in the world. They knew they always had an even break. He never did a mean or unfair thing in his life. And this feeling appeared to be true, as their investigation of the expelled boys didn't amount to anything. There was even a theory that Elliot had had an affair, and that a shunned lover had wanted revenge, or that his wife may have found out about the affair and then she killed him. But this affair theory was also eventually discounted. The police also looked at boys at the school who were known to be mentally unstable, but this proved to be a dead end as well. Just as the school trustees decided that school should still commence, they also had to decide who should take on the acting headmaster role until a permanent replacement could be appointed. One person who was considered was the dean of the school, a man named Thomas Elder. However, at the meeting, many expressed the opinion that the dean's recent health issues would not make him a good candidate to take over, as he had had a heart attack recently. They also didn't think his temperament suited the position. Ultimately, they appointed the man who was the head of the Bible department. But this man expressed the opinion that a small committee should be temporarily appointed rather than just one person, given the extraordinary events that had occurred. So, a committee of three was appointed, with Dean Thomas Elder being one. After the meeting, the president of the Board of Trustees, Wilfred Fry, went to speak to the dean to inform him that they had appointed him to be on the committee. This was the first time they had spoken since the murder of Elliot, and here are the first words that the dean had reportedly said to Fry. Quote, I suppose the trustees will want me to carry on, as though Elliot were away for an absence, as I have always done. He, as you know, left matters very largely in my hands. Fry and the other board members knew Dean Elder sufficiently well enough to know that he would not be happy with the arrangement that they had agreed to, and they were correct. 
the dean had expected that he would have been appointed as Elliot's successor, but he was informed that they decided the role was too large for one person given the circumstances of upheaval the school now faced, and that instead he had been chosen to be on the committee of three. As expected, he profusely objected, stating he should at least have been the chairman of the committee, and then, after a heated argument, he announced that he would rather resign. But after some further discussion, he agreed to the arrangement, although rather grudgingly. The dean then spoke about a conversation that he had had with Elliot before his death, where they spoke about the upcoming new school year and the changes that Elliot intended to make in regards to the dean's work arrangements. Firstly, Elliot told the dean that he would give him an increase in salary plus a number of other benefits as reward for his dedicated work at the school. Fry responded by saying that Elliot had never spoken to him about this and the dean replied that he had letters to prove it. The dean then produced two letters. The first was a letter he had written to Elliot and the second was Elliot's reply. You will now hear both of the letters and pay particular attention to the tone of the letters, as this will be important to the story later on. While listening to the letters, consider the relationship between the two men. So first, here is the Dean's letter to Elliot. Dear Elliot, at your request I am writing, with reluctance, my understanding of our recent conversation and also reiterating in writing the views which I expressed to you verbally. First, may I say thank you for the generous statement you made to me relative to increase in salary. I am particularly grateful for your gracious offer regarding the pension which you promised in case of a breakdown in my health and for the extension of the pension in part to my wife for her life if I should be taken. Your earnest request for me to work less is much appreciated but I simply must work. Since I began to work for the schools in the summer of 1900, I have tried to give to the work all that I had. I am glad to believe that I was a help to Dr. Cutler. I am glad that you think I have helped you. In regard to the Bible courses, they bother me. I am, I suppose, what may be called a moderate liberal. There are certain things which the founder accepted and which Dr. Cutler said he accepted, that I frankly cannot understand. I am not, however, ready to raise issues of which I am in doubt, nor am I ready to teach youth that the old is not sound. I like Les White. Your feeling that he will never be an educator may be true, I cannot say. I do know that his prayer meetings are good. His chapel talks, however, I think would be better if he did not cater to the idea that boys should be entertained. Perhaps it may be well, as you contemplate, to place Mr. Deming in the cashier's office. He has no training for that work, but he certainly is not an outstanding teacher. I had hoped he would work in the study hall, but he does not seem to understand boys well enough for that. I feel badly to have Mr. Kohler go because after all, he has done his work well. I do not care to comment on Mr. S.A. You know him. 
your idea of keeping him from having much contact with the boys and their parents may be wise. I am under the impression, however, that he is not ready for retirement so soon as you hope. I can understand your statements regarding Al. Frankly, I think both you and he are strong personalities that are obliged to clash at times. You think he wants to have too much say about the affairs of the school and I am sure he feels the same way regarding you. Perhaps you are both right. It will work out all right in the end. You may recall that I recommended him for the position and I have no cause to regret it. Of course, the science department is weak. It is too bad Mr. Barris is such a good man. We need, however, a forceful, mature and well-trained man to head that department. Spurgeon Gage is a wonder. I only wish he had completed his college course. I think you are making some changes too fast. I personally do not see any improvement in scholarship. Yes, I think you have made mistakes. It was inevitable. I imagine Dr. Cutler made them when he first came. Numerous changes must result in some mistakes, and yet it is better to make mistakes than to become stagnant. I have given you unstinted loyalty. I could do nothing else. I believe in many of the changes you have made, and I further believe that those changes which may not work, you will be the first to change them. It has been a hard year for me. You have, however, been fair and square. It is a joy to work with you. I believe you will go far. You may count on me to the limit of my strength and the utmost of my ability. Ever yours, Tom. And here now is Elliot's letter in reply to the Dean. Dear Tom, to prevent any misunderstanding and for your own confidential use, I am confirming our recent conversation. Dr. Cutler once said to me, I would rather lose three heads of department than to lose Tom. After working with you, I can make that same statement. Not because we agree on all things, but because of your frankness, your loyalty, and your executive and administrative ability. You know more about the history, work, and need of the school than any man now connected with the work. As I told you, I think you are woefully underpaid and while I cannot begin to offer you what you have been offered by other institutions in the past, I am going to raise your pay $4,000 per year plus your fuel, electricity and care of your lawn. If at any time you continue to make a fool of yourself by working too hard, as I fear you will, I shall use all my influence with the trustees to retire you on $3,000 per year as long as you live and if you should die before Mrs. Elder, to pay her $1,500 a year so long as she lives. I am sure the trustees back me in this when they know how much you have helped both Dr. Cutler and me. I do not agree with you relative to the Bible department. In my opinion, Les White has a good influence with the boys, but he is not and will never be an educator. I think you worry too much about the socialistic tendencies of some of the younger teachers. If they do not believe in immortality, I think they should be honest and teach their convictions. Boys are going to face the question sooner or later, why not now? I think there has been 
too much effort to keep the school different from other schools. The founder and Mr. W.R. are both dead and a new era based on modernistic views is replacing the old. You have been much more liberal than many, but I think you still wish to retain too much of the old. You know perfectly well that that cannot be done. You may be right in saying I made a mistake in laxity of discipline. I think perhaps you are right. I am drifting somewhat to our point of view that proper emphasis on scholarship will take care of most of the discipline of the school. I think we agree also that the science department is in for a shake-up and that I shall have to fire Mr. Barris. In the cashier's office, I would like to keep Mr. S.A. from contact with students as far as possible. Following the plans I talked over with you, I think I shall have to fire Mr. Kohler, put Wilson in his place and put Deming at the desk. Mr. Deming may not be fitted for this position, but you know as well as I that he cannot teach and you think it would be unchristian to throw him out. I expect you, of course, to handle all correspondence with parents and guardians in regards to finance, just as you have been doing this year. I have already told S.A. to turn these matters over to you, which I understand he has done. I shall be glad when S.A. reaches 65, when we shall certainly wish to retire him. You are all wrong about the tobacco. I think it is all right for the young teachers to smoke. I do not think Al is as valuable as you think. I hired him on your recommendation, but he is too much inclined to think that he runs the school. I want to find a younger man to work in his place and am counting on your help. We must progress and frankly, I don't care how soon some of the old teachers get through. They have been helpful but they are not in line with progressive educational ideas. You are by far the most progressive of them all, and I'm going to leave you more and more of that side of the work to you. I simply must be away from school more and more as time passes. I have explicit confidence in you personally and in your ability. There is not a single phase of the work that you cannot handle exactly as well as I. We are going to have a good time working out our plans together with best wishes. And it needs to be mentioned here that Elliot did not finish this letter with his signature. So now that you've heard the two letters, consider the tone and the relationship between the two men. The letters appear to show that the men had a close relationship, that they discussed school matters and how the school should run. Although they may not have always agreed, it seems that they had a mutual respect and that they sought each other's opinion on a range of school issues. So the dean gave these two letters to Fry, and after reading them, he was considerably bewildered at the contents. He had not known about any of the wishes Elliot had expressed in his letter, and he noted that the letters had been written many months earlier in February, and now it was September. He wondered how Elliot had not mentioned to him any of what he spoke about in his letter in all of the months that he had an opportunity to do so. Over the coming days and weeks, he looked over the letters carefully and finally came to suspect that the letters 
were not real. A number of things were worrying to him. Firstly, the letters appeared to be copies, and Elliot's letter had not been signed. It also appeared not to be complete, with a portion seemingly missing. The Dean's letter had also been typed onto Elliot's own office stationery. So Fry decided to question the Dean about all of this. When asked if these were copies of the original letters, the Dean said that he couldn't remember. When asked how his letter happened to be typed on Elliot's stationery, he said he always carried the stationery with him. He was also asked if he or anyone in his family could type, to which he replied, no. Then there was the part of Elliot's letter that seemed to be missing, and the Dean explained this by saying that Elliot had made some disparaging comments about the former headmaster, and that the Dean didn't want this known so that Elliot wouldn't be seen in a bad light for making such comments. So he removed that portion of the letter, which just happened to include Elliot's signature. After speaking to the Dean, Fry was even more convinced that Elliot's letter was a fake. He then showed the letters to other trusted staff, and they confirmed that the words used just didn't sound like Elliot's. With others backing up his theory, Fry decided to go to the police with the letters. He was interviewed, and the police believed that they had enough grounds to name the Dean as a suspect in Elliot's murder. The matter was ultimately referred to the judicial system and an inquest was held into Elliot's murder. So that brings us to the end of part one and in part two of the story we will go into what happened at the inquest. So I will release part two in a few days. Now just before we finish I have to share with you a new podcast from a wonderful lady that I've met through my own podcast journey. She used to co-host a true crime podcast called Bloody Murder, which is also an Australian podcast, but now she's gone solo with her own podcast called World's Dumbest Criminals. So take a listen here to Tara Saraban as she previews her new podcast. Did you hear about the Welsh tourists who got drunk and stole a penguin named Dirk from SeaWorld on the Gold Coast? Or the Canadian guy who tried to beat a breathalyzer test by eating his own underpants. Hey, I'm Tara Saraban from World's Dumbest Criminals, an upbeat podcast about deadbeat crims. Join me every Monday to hear about the most ridiculous, bizarre and downright stupid crimes and criminals in the world ever. Like the Australian man who put out an unsuccessful hit on his wife and freaked out when she crashed her own funeral. Or the Chinese woman who deliberately ran 49 red lights in her ex-boyfriend's car. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes, Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans. Doesn't that sound great? It's brand new. There are two episodes out now. So please head over and give Tara your support as she has really been wonderful to me in my own podcast journey. So bye for now and remember to be a good apple.